0: Some of us come to Matthew chapter 24 uh, with a relatively uh, sloppy is probably an unkind word, but an underdeveloped um, theology of the end. And if you were here last week, we started with Jesus communicating and uh, helping the disciples to have wisdom as they wait for his return and as they anticipate the coming end of the age. And uh, I don't know what your situation has been and how you've grown up in Christ, but being raised in a pastor's home for most of my most of my childhood and being raised in a Christian home for all of my life, uh, I grew up with a certain set of expectations about the end times. They were not biblically informed. It wasn't that my family sat around the table and had a Bible study to determine what uh, what we believed. We we basically inherited. Uh, A system of beliefs about the end times. And I carried that inheritance and I received it without really any question until I was faced with the task of studying scripture at a much more complex level or intentional level during my seminary years and training down at the Master's Seminary. And Matthew chapter 24, I told some of you this week, has been on my radar since the very first message in Matthew back in September of 2007. I've known that 24 was here. In fact, part of part of coming to grips with beginning our study as a church family in the Gospel of Matthew was dealing with whether or not we would tackle 24 and how soon would we get there. And now we're here, and it's upon us. And I want to set aside left-behind series uh, Movies as the basis of theology. I want to set aside inherited family theology of the end, and I want to just simply come with you and go to the scriptures and allow them to speak for themselves this morning. This is Jesus Himself communicating to us, and um, it's our privilege to submit to Him as we go to His Word this morning. Let's read together again and uh, set up our text. We'll read verses 1 through 31 just so that we have the whole context. I know that's. A little bit of reading, but uh, you follow along, and then we'll dive into the second half of that section, verses 15 through 31, for our study this morning. Verse number 1 of Matthew 24 says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not has been has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved for the sake of the elect. Those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is. There the vultures will gather immediately after the tribulation of those days. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the others. Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for your gracious communication with us, this revelation of truth that you have allowed us to have in our own language, you have preserved for us. And that you now intend for these few moments, even this morning, even here, with whatever circumstances we have brought to the table, you intend for us, who are your people, to be shaped and molded by this portion of your word. You intend for our minds to be renewed, so that we are thinking your thoughts after you, for our perspectives to be informed, so that we might have joy and effectiveness in proclaiming the gospel, and for our Our hope to be sure. As we revel in the reality of the coming of our Savior. Our hope. The one who has secured our salvation. And who will bring to fulfillment all of your word. We give you praise and thanks even as we ask for help. This is a difficult portion of your word. It is hard for us to... Understand and to work through what is communicated to us. Give us grace and strength. Help us not to stand in judgment over your word, but to allow your word to stand as the authority this morning. May it. May it be held up singularly as your voice. May we be quick to hear it, slow to speak back, slow to anger in what we're receiving And in receiving and hearing your word, may we become doers, obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give you praise and thanks, and we will turn back praise as you work through our time of study this morning. We offer up our request, and we give you our worship in the name of our Savior, the coming King. Amen. Well, by way of review, just so that we know where we are, if you're entering into this with us today for the first time, Matthew chapter 24 is the is the starting point of the fifth and final sermon or discourse that Jesus is recorded as delivering by Matthew, one of his 12 disciples. This is a key marker. There are five discourses in Matthew. You can divide up the book with those five discourses and get a clear perspective of Matthew's theme. That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one from heaven. There is no other one to look forward to. He alone fulfills all that was prophesied. And all that was commanded in the law of God. And in this final discourse. Jesus is communicating with a different set of people. There has been the longest recorded discourse. Which is familiar to us as the Sermon on the Mount. Where Thousands of people, perhaps hundreds, if not thousands, were gathered around Jesus, listening to him on a plateau. But here, Jesus is not communicating with thousands of would-be followers. He's not communicating with enemies of the religious movement in Jerusalem that we've just studied at the temple. But rather, he's with his twelve disciples. And they've come to him and they've asked specific questions of Jesus. And those questions are driven by the first two verses and what they record in chapter 24. Very simply, leaving Israel or leaving Jerusalem rather, the disciples are marveling, Mark tells us, at the beauty of the temple. And they point out the vista to Jesus. Look at the beautiful temple. And Jesus responds by telling them that the temple is going to be leveled. It's going to be dozed. There's not going to be one stone of the temple still standing on top of another one. And that prompts them to to believe that that would surely mark the end of the age. And so they ask him two questions. When will these things be? And what will be the signs that accompany your coming in this period of the end of the age? Those two questions are responded to by Jesus in the remainder of this this section and into chapter 25 with the parables that we'll find there in a few weeks. Last week we noticed that there are potentials that accompany the the coming of the end that the disciples of Christ, the, the believers, need to be aware of. There is potential deception, there is potential fear and terror, there is potential desertion and gloriously there is potential salvation because the gospel will go out before the end comes. Now with that backdrop and that wisdom that was provided in our study last week from the Spirit's word to us, there are several factors that we need to rehearse as we start into verse number 15 and carry relatively quickly through verse number 31. First of all, Our goal on the Lord's Day morning never changes. My goal, my job never changes. There's no no effect of of this portion that changes anything about what we do. Our job is clear to acquire, understand, and obey the Word of God. We We want to acquire what is here. We want to observe what is here. We want to understand it. We want to interpret it. And then we want to obey it. This allows us to take each text head on. We don't run from any text, nor do we impose upon any text a certain system of beliefs. Now, surely, Scripture always explains Scripture. And the whole of Scripture, systematically broken down, is a valuable discipline, theologically. But this morning, I hope that you can appreciate a proper expectation for our study. This is not a systematic theology study. This is a study of 15 to 31 in Matthew chapter 24. I know this morning that some of you will be less than fulfilled by our study. Some of you will be frustrated by what I say or how I say it or what I don't say or how I explain it or how I don't explain it. And ultimately, our goal must be at the center of our expectation. Do we understand why? The Spirit of God inspired this word to be given to us this morning. I trust that we'll come to the end. And though all questions will not be answered. The primary question will be answered. What did the Spirit say to us through Matthew's pen? And how might I then go about obeying what we find on the page of our Bible? Now we could we could desire that Jesus would give us full blueprints of the end of the age. If you're an engineer, you could appreciate some plans, like stacks of paper that you go through and see all of the intricate details panned out and played out for you on paper. But Jesus here takes a napkin and a pencil and sketches something out. And that's what we have to work with. And with that in mind, we come to this expecting him to give us a general appreciation for what is to come. The disciples are desperate for answers. Jesus gives them exactly what they need. Other portions of scripture will fill in the gaps in our understanding of this text. Jesus gives us... And gives the disciples three precise realities that mark the end of the age. And you remember the grand theme that kind of is the overarching big idea. The the one central thought I believe behind Matthew's writing is that a Christian theology of the end. What Jesus has to say about the end has everything to do with how Christians live today. So a Christian theology of the end is critical to, it's vital to, Christian living today or tomorrow. So this week, this first week of December, this first full week of December, should be informed by the end times. There should be biblical realities that we gather from Matthew chapter 24 that inform the way we live. They help us think. They help us respond. They grant us internal qualities because of what we believe. So with that in mind, there are these three defined realities these three events or circumstances that accompany the end times that we we must approach as we come to verse number 15 first of all we'll see that the enemy of christ will come secondly we'll notice that the counterfeit christ will multiply and thirdly we'll see that the true christ will come in glory the enemy of christ will come verses 15 through 22 secondly The counterfeit Christ will multiply. And thirdly, the true Christ will come in glory. So let's begin then with verse number 15 and see that the enemy of Christ will come. You might wonder where the enemy of Christ is identified in verses 15 through 22. And uh, I trust that it will become clear as we examine it. Verse 15 begins, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel... Standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea. Flee to the mountains. Verse number 21. Why? Verse number 21. For then there will be great tribulation. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. That is never will be again. So. Here we find that the enemy of Christ has come. Now, where do we find the enemy of Christ? Well, he's wrapped up in that interesting, if not obscure phrase, the abomination of desolation. Jesus is referring here to a prophetic phrase from Daniel. He says that Daniel chapter 9, verse number 27 and Daniel chapter 11 and verse 31 both speak of the abomination that leads to desolation. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this individual is identified as the Antichrist. Revelation, the man of lawlessness, Revelation chapter 13 calls this one the beast. And his abomination of desolation is culminated in his sitting upon the throne in the temple and calling himself God. Now, the interesting thing is, is when we go to Daniel chapter 9 and verse number 27 and Daniel chapter 11 and verse 31, there is both a near and a far fulfillment to this prophecy. You see, in the time of Daniel, there was a very real event that would come following This prophetic work from Daniel where a very real earthly king really slaughtered pigs, unclean animals, and really put their blood all over the altar of the temple and desecrated the temple for the nation of Israel. And Jesus here, referencing back to the prophecy of Daniel, shows that the prophecy of Daniel actually looks forward through the first event to a culminating ultimate event Of the abomination of desolation. This is what in theological terms. We call telescope prophecy. You all have played with a telescope. Or you remember playing with a telescope. At some time way in the past. And it pops out. If you close the telescope. And you look at one end of it. All you could see is that there is one lens here. And there is another lens here. But when you pop it out. You see that there are a bunch of different segments. That make up a very long telescope telescope prophecy means that there is both an immediate application of the prophecy and then there is a long-term application of the prophecy what jesus does here is looks at the abomination of desolation spoken of in daniel and that's jesus in the parentheses by the way let the reader understand that's jesus he's saying that that's not matthew that's not matthew adding a commentary like hey you reading my My gospel account, you should understand this, is Jesus. It's in Mark as well. He says, let the reader of Daniel understand what he's reading. What the reader of Daniel should understand is that this is not just the immediate desecration of the temple. This is a coming ultimate event when the one, the enemy of God, will come and will, with abomination, make desolate the temple. This is a culminating event, and it ushers in the time of great tribulation. So when this abomination of desolation comes, Jesus says, run for your lives. Notice his description in verse number 17. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who's in the field not go take his cloak. So in other words, don't grab your prized possessions and don't go get your outer garment. The cloak would be the covering piece. And all for the women who are pregnant or nursing because it will be difficult to run. And pray that it's not the winter time which would make traveling difficult if you were going to get to the mountains and hide. Pray that it's not the Sabbath which would restrict how far you can go. Because you need to run. You need to run when this happens. Because when the abomination of desolation occurs. When the great beast, the Antichrist. Spoken of in Revelation chapter 13 verses 14 and 15. Accomplishes his purposes. Is seated upon the throne. Declares that he is God. A time of suffering will be ushered in that the world has never known. That's why the explanation is given in verse number 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. We've been in Genesis in our adult Bible fellowship. We've been studying the flood and the tragic consequences of sin as God poured out his judgment upon humanity. This time of tribulation that will follow the coming of the enemy of Christ. This time of tribulation has no equal in world history. Think of, imagine the worst possible scenario. This will overcome the evil that you can that you can trace to the farthest edge of your imagination. This is no Holocaust. This is far greater. This is no tsunami caught on video. This is far greater. This is no 9-11 towers falling down with thousands of people and rescue workers inside. This is far greater. So Jesus says, Mark my words, the birth pangs will lead to the actual birth pain when the coming abomination of def- desolation is seen. And following its culmination... In the temple, there will be amazing tribulation on the face of the earth. Now, notice how Jesus goes on in verse number 22. And he says, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. In other words, everyone would die if the tribulation was not in some way limited. And there's only one reason that the tribulation is limited. It's limited for the sake of the elect. But for the sake of the elect, the last sentence of verse 22, those days will be cut short. There will be an end to the great tribulation because of God's chosen people. For the sake of God's people, the tribulation will not go unending. The beast will come. His terror will be known, his tribulation will be felt, but for the sake of the elect who are going through it, it will come to an end. Now the word elect is simply the word chosen. This chosen ones. And there's there's no there's no creative way to get away from what this word means. It means the ones that God has chosen. And we know that this is part of the 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 glories of the gospel. That God in His sovereign grace sets His affections upon individuals like us who are sinful, running away from Him, not desiring Him, not looking for Him, not wanting Him. Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and 3. This is the only constraining reason for the end of the tribulation. It is those elect ones, the ones that God has set His affections upon that caused him to limit the effects of the tribulation doled out by the Antichrist, the beast. Now, surely, for the readers who were the earliest readers of Matthew's gospel account, they were looking back and seeing A.D. 70 as a clear marker. Jesus said, not one stone will be left standing upon the temple. And when the disciples said... When will these things happen? And what will be the signs that accompany your coming? He said there will be an abomination of desolation. And so for many, AD 70, when the temple was leveled, the Romans ravaged the city of Jerusalem, this seemingly is fulfilled. There isn't one stone left standing. But not unlike Daniel's first prophecy of an abomination of desolation, Jesus is not, he is not looking merely at the very first foreshadowing fulfillments of his prophecy, but rather looking beyond AD 70 to something far greater. AD 70 simply does not hold up when the telescope is popped out. When you pop it open, you see AD 70 fits in as one of the links foreshadowing, leading to, looking forward to the culmination, which will include suffering as has never been experienced before. So, we must be informed by these words from Jesus. He's teaching his disciples. He's teaching us We must be informed, but we must recognize even as we read this and we are overwhelmed by what is described, we must be reminded that this enemy of Christ who will, with his abomination, make desolate worship in the temple of the one true God, he will not succeed in his evil mission. He will come. He will establish himself. He will lead many astray. He will cause suffering for millions. But he will not succeed. Jesus Christ is coming. Nor will the great tribulation go on unendingly because Jesus Christ is coming. This is the anticipation that comes from the information delivered from Jesus. Both of these events, both the coming of the the beast, the Antichrist who is Satan's top henchman, and the tribulation period that will follow will be brought to an end by the glorious coming of Jesus, the King. With one word, He will destroy this abomination of desolation. And with glorious entrance, trumpet sounds, angels beckoning, He will return in glorious victory For a thousand years of reigning on the earth. So, Christian theology, even this declaration from Jesus that when we see or they see, this generation sees the desolation that comes from abomination, there will be great suffering. Even as we see this from Jesus, our hope should be built by the reality that it is not the end. The end will come as Christ establishes his throne. Forever. Following this enemy of Christ coming. We find a second grand reality. In this text. And that is the counterfeit Christ will multiply. Now we've already referenced these counterfeit Christ. We've already seen them. They're going to be active. They are active presently. Anticipating the coming of the end. But when the coming of the end is here. When the tribulation is present. These individuals will multiply. These will go from. A few to many, or from a many to a multitude. And it will be obvious why. Verse number twenty three then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe for false Christ and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray if possible even the elect, that is after themselves. So I have told you beforehand with the beast reigning on the throne and declaring that he is God, with the tribulation in full, full fury, many will capitalize, many counterfeit Christs, counterfeit messiahs will capitalize on the opportunity to prey upon desperate people, desperate for relief from their suffering. They will claim that they are the Christ, or they will claim that they know where the Christ is and where relief can be found. Jesus says, do not believe them. They are so bent on dragging to hell all who will follow them, that if it were possible, they would take even the elect with them. And that phrase, if it were possible, is a clear sign that it is not. It is not possible that the elect be led astray. But Jesus says, do not even hear them. Don't believe, don't be, don't be duped into thinking there might be validity. In desperate tribulation, the multiplication of false Christ will take place. These evil imposters will take with them any and all who will follow them. Now, notice again that the word elect has come up in verse number 24. Even the elect who are under the potential sway, though it is impossible for them to walk away and to follow a false Christ, they are under the sound of these false Christs and false prophets. In other words, these elect ones, the ones for whom the tribulation will be cut short, it will end. These ones are under the sound of these false Christs, these false prophets. They are both national Israel and remnant of the national Israel that will be saved. And there is, I believe, it seems on the face value, the church. Both the church and national Israel are represented in the elect. It is a term for the people of God in your New Testament. Therefore, Jesus warns the disciples. And by warning the disciples, warns all of the people of God. That they not believe these false Christ and false prophets. Verse number 26. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And then notice this explanation. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then this strange little sentence. One of those odd ones that you're reading really fast and then you slow down. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Jesus says to the disciples, listen, when the the abomination of desolation comes, Following that will come an amazing, the great tribulation. A period of suffering that has never been known. And as that suffering is taking place, there will be a multiplication of people who say, I am the Christ, or I know where the Christ is. Follow me. Don't follow. Don't believe. Don't go after them. Why? Because when the Son of Man comes, it will be like a lightning bolt that lights up the sky. I didn't realize how rare... Lightning bolts were here in our area until we moved here In fact, I I want to say it was a year and a half ago or something. We had a really powerful thunderstorm And people were getting in their cars and driving out to try to watch the storm I'm thinking that doesn't make any sense now My wife is one of those people that goes on the porch when you can like smell the electric. It's so close to you Uh, I go hide under the covers. Okay, I don't like storms but for living in Texas for a year before coming here, I'm aware of what picture Jesus is illustrating. And, and you are too, if you've ever seen this. I've seen great storms. I've seen the lightning that flashes and lights up all of the visible sky. From one end of what you could see to the other, there is light for a moment. Jesus says, this is what the, son, the coming of the Son of Man will be like. So don't believe that I'm out in a, in a wilderness. Don't believe that I'm in some secret room. Don't believe someone who says, oh, I'm him, because if you haven't experienced this, I'm not here yet. And then he gives that proverb in verse number 28. And I believe it's difficult for us simply because we're caught up in wondering, oh, no, what do we do with verse number 28? I don't think it's that complex. I believe Jesus is just giving a simple proverb that would have been a common colloquial proverb in the day. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In other words, vultures always find the corpse. They never seem to miss a dead animal that's laying there. And so it is with the believers. Don't worry. Vultures don't miss corpses, and believers won't miss the coming of the Son of Man. It's not as if it's going to sneak past you. It's not as if you're going to wonder, well, maybe it, it already happened and this person who's telling me that, that the Christ is in some secret inner room, they're telling me the truth. Don't worry. Vultures don't miss corpse and believers don't miss the coming of the Son of Man. Just a proverbial statement. I believe that's the best understanding. Rather than reading into it that there's death and that the corpse is Christ or the corpse is, is the, the enemies of Christ who are dead already and the vultures are Christ or the vultures are the believers... Um, If you have a King James, eagles, that's a terrible translation. It's not eagles. Eagles don't go to dead animals. They kill their own food. So this this is vultures. And the picture is just a simple, colloquial, cultural phrase. Wherever the corpse is, there will the vultures gather. Don't believe the multiplying false Christ. So massive reality number one, the enemy. The enemy of Christ is coming. Reality number two. Counterfeit Christ are going to multiply. Multiple counterfeit Christ and prophets for counterfeit Christs will come. And then thirdly, we find that the true Christ will come in glory, which has already been referenced in verse number twenty-seven, but is picked up with So much more description in verse number 29. So to this point, we we need to pause and understand that the end time, biblically informed end time theology has everything to do with biblically informed right now time living. Your hope, your expectation, your perspective on your life today, this afternoon, tomorrow, at work, with your kids, whatever the case your perspective must be informed by the end times as Christ communicates them. So he is both informing us, and in the second reality, he is warning us. Those of us who abide in him, though we will suffer in the tribulation, will not be led astray with those who will follow counterfeit prophets and counterfeit Christs. That leads us then to the third and climactic reality that we must consider from Matthew chapter 24 in verses number 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send out his angels and with a loud trumpet call, they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. This is the glorious appearing, the coming, the parousia of Christ. This is the confident expectation of all suffering believers, of all believers throughout the ages. This is the culmination of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it happens immediately after the tribulation. Um, We get very specific in verse number 29. Immediately after the tribulation that has ensued with the abomination of desolation, The establishment of this Antichrist, the multiplication of counterfeit Christ, immediately following that tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man will appear. Now, notice what it includes. In verse number 29, it includes universal darkness and confusion. Uh, Universal darkness. Don't, Don't read this with familiarity. It says that the tribulation of those days will be ended and the sun will be darkened. Eclipse, the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. In other words, mass confusion of all of the structures that we expect and live with will be taking place. Adjustments will happen that we have never experienced. The sun will stop burning the moon therefore will stop reflecting what the sun is giving off in light and total darkness will come upon the world stars will fall from heaven this will be the shower of all showers and all the powers of heaven will be shaken it will be as if the universe has been shaken like a can of soda All that we know will come to a screeching halt at the coming of the Son of Man. Secondly, we find in verse number 30 that mourning will come. Mourning, that is despair, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. Why? Because all of the tribes of the earth represent all of the people groups that are apart from, outside of, The electing purpose of God. Those that are outside of the grace of God. Those who are not anticipating the coming of Christ. Whose hope is not founded in Christ. Whose hope is not established in His appearing. All of them will mourn. Because in that moment, there will be a realization. That something far greater than even the suffering of the great tribulation is about to come. And that is the judgment of a holy, sovereign, creator God. Therefore, verse 30 says, the nations. Will mourn. But verse 31 tells us that the elect will be gathered joyfully into his presence. Verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. Universal darkness and confusion? Yes. Mourning on the part of those outside of Christ's love and grace? Yes. Joyful gathering of the elect to be in the presence of Christ forever. Yes. Now note here, brothers and sisters, that there is a a key phrase in verse number 31 that is probably familiar to you. If you're a Bible student, you've recognized it when you read it. Verse 31 says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. This is a key marker to the return of Christ. This trumpet call. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 53, speaks of this trumpet call. Let's let's go there. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and let's see it together. It would be good to move your fingers. You haven't felt them for the last 10 minutes, so move them. It's good. 1 Corinthians 15. We know the context here. Paul is assuring the believers that a resurrection is coming because of the resurrection of Jesus. And he says in verse number 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does, the, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. In other words, you don't get to the inheritance of heaven because you're in a certain birth line. It's not flesh and blood issue. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, that's the the second familiar reference. Probably the most familiar reference is in 1 Thessalonians. Turn to 1 Thessalonians a few pages over in chapter 4. Paul here is doling out comfort to the suffering believers at Thessalonica, confused about the coming of the Lord. He tells them in chapter 4, beginning in verse number 13, that he doesn't want them to be uninformed. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who are dead in Christ, that you may not grieve as others who who, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This great trumpet, I believe, is best understood as one trumpet. It is the last trumpet. It is the final declaration of the coming of the son of man. It is both the resurrection of the dead. Putting on new immortal bodies imperishable. And the gathering of those who are living. The elect ones being gathered into the presence of Christ. Who comes in the clouds. Now that leads me to a conclusion that obviously is unfamiliar to my system that I inherited as a youth. Because I believe, and I, I'm confidently tentative, I think, that the rapture of the believers will accompany the resurrection of the believers, it will follow the resurrection of the believers, and all of those will take place after the tribulation period has come to its fullness. All believers will be rescued from the wrath of God. None will experience the torment that he will pour out upon the unbelieving world. But I do believe that if we take the text at its face value, it's it's impossible for me to come to the conclusion that there is some exodus intended here. Will national Israel be restored? Yes, absolutely. Will Jesus literally sit upon the throne of David? Yes, He will come in glorious might and for once the nation of Israel will be faithful to him. They will receive all of the blessings that he intended. And accompanying the nation of Israel will be this group of grafted in believers. Gentiles, you and I, who are, if alive, faithful to the end. If dead, resurrected resurrected first to meet Christ in the clouds. My good brother and pastor, fellow pastor, Andrew Francine, says this. His return marks triumph and restoration. God overcomes evil. Justice stamps out oppression. Healing and order overtake fallenness and dysfunction. Wars turn to peace. How? Jesus, the Messiah, returns. The awesome Son of Man brings history to its determined end. The abominable one cannot desolate any more than Christ appoints, and Christ himself will destroy his ultimate opponent, the abominable one. Christian, settle this in your heart. Now, the implications are rather severe. Some should be terrified at reading Matthew chapter 24 because it represents the impending doom. Of all who are outside of Christ. But others of us who are in Christ. Ought to find hope. In our current suffering. And even with the knowledge of future suffering. Our hope is sure in the return of Christ. That is the basis of our hope. Now what do we do with this text? Well with the backdrop of Christian theology of the end informing Christian living in the present, let me consider with you a few thoughts by way of application. First of all, unbelievers who are gathered here this morning, whether claiming to be in Christ or not, recognize your impending judgment. Apart from that son of man, substituting his righteousness for you and bearing your judgment on himself at the cross, apart from you placing your confidence only in him, in his resurrected life. Apart from that. You only are looking forward to. His wrath. And he will pour it out. With fury. In the holiness. Of heaven. So unbeliever. Jesus. The coming Jesus. Is your only hope of rescue. From the wrath of God. Believers. Firstly. This coming of the Lord is our hope and comfort. And often we find ourselves chasing counterfeit hope and counterfeit comfort. Uh, I can't tell you. we, We could have an illustration time and we could share testimonies of chasing counterfeit comforts and it would never end. It happens on a daily basis where we place our hope for the next 10 minutes in something we're about to do. And we're disappointed We place our confidence in something that's going to happen next month, or something that's potential next year, or once we get this done with, or once we get that taken care of. This alone is our hope and comfort. We have a Savior who is alive and who is coming again to restore all that is disorderly and to gather with Him those of us who are His. Your suffering, this is your hope, this is your comfort. Secondly, as we study this subject and the coming of Christ, please understand there is room for disagreement concerning the timing of the gathering of the people of God. There is room for disagreement in the timing of the rapture of the saints, if that's the terminology you've been familiar with. The gathering of the people into the presence of Christ, there is there is. Obviously, there are many, many careful, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting biblical theologians who disagree over the timing. Why? Because the scriptures are difficult to understand. And this is one of the parts where scripture whispers, so we whisper. I believe that the rapture will follow the tribulation. But understand that there is wide room for disagreement Concerning this timing of the rapture of God's people. Thirdly, there is no wideness for disagreement in where we find our fellowship as God's people. Often, this issue of eschatology of the end times becomes a centerpiece of debate and division within the body of Christ. For many, it becomes not the information needed for living with a proper perspective today, but the ammunition To do battle today against my family members in the the family of faith. So understand that our fellowship as believers rests in our unified hope in the return of Christ. His coming in glory and power is the basis of our unity. He has lived, died, and risen to save us from the wrath of God. We don't experience condemnation now, nor will we then. Therefore, we must find our unity in Him. And today, it is critical for us today, for Sunday, December 5th. What do we do with Matthew 24? Look forward to that impending glorious return. It's coming. His return is coming. It is, it is weighty. It is, it is nearing its fullness. Come to the Scriptures and glean wisdom from this interaction with the disciples. For the wait. Tribulation will never overcome Christ's people. He is your rescue. This week. And in the 70th week. That is spoken of in Daniel chapter 9. Now let me just pause. Because I feel like it's necessary to do this. If you're suffering today. The second coming of Christ. Should be a balm to your soul. You see, now how, how can that be? That's, that's seemingly so far away. If you're suffering today and you are looking at a painful existence, there is only one place for you to look. And it is the exact same place that I believe those who are no doubt, those who are suffering as the elect ones during the tribulation, whether that's all of the believers, Who lived up to the point of the tribulation or whether it's just the believers within the tribulation period who become believers during that time. They will all look forward to the return of Christ. Whether before that point, now in the birth pangs or whether it is during the most severe tribulation ever known. The only place for hope is Christ and his return. If He is in heaven forever, never to come back, we are hopeless. We will never see Him, so we will never be like Him. We will never receive the the fullness of our inheritance that the Spirit represents as a down payment. So look to the second coming of Christ. Look forward with anticipation. It will not disappoint. You can try to get a good meal. You can hope for a better night's rest. You can try to have a date to get things better. You can strategize financially to try to structure things so that comfort and hope and joy come. And it will never satisfy. Or you can place your eyes squarely upon the coming one. Who now is at the right hand of the Father, seated because his work is finished until his exaltation is made known. And you will find rest and comfort for your soul. A biblical theology of the end has everything to do with biblical living today. Why do we have hope? Because the cross of Christ assures it. His humility leads to his exaltation. His taking on the form of a man leads to every knee bowing at the name that is above every name. That name is Lord over all. Humility leads to exaltation. Imputation of Christ's righteousness leads to adoption and a coming inheritance. This second coming is built upon the hope that we have in his first coming. And the hope that we have in his first coming is centered upon Calvary. It's at the cross where the perfect obedience of Christ is substituted and credited to our account. It is at the cross where His perfect life is given up and the wrath of God is poured out in the curse in our place. It's where He bears our wrath. It's where we receive His righteousness. So as we remember that cross, we are not disconnected from the coming of Christ. It is that first coming culminating in the cross that builds all of our anticipation for His return. Looking to the end, according to the scriptures, with the hope of his appearing. Is the critical piece for us this week to live presently with gospel realities in front of our face, bringing glory and honor to our Savior. Good theology of the end times has everything to do with good living that is Christ centered, faith based living and obedience this week. Let's look forward. Let's agree on what we must agree on. Let's be careful to disagree with love and grace. And let's anticipate the coming of our Christ. Father, thank you for just the simple reality that we call him our Christ. We have no rights. We have no rights to his righteousness. We have no rights. We have no merit to his affection. To your choosing, there is nothing in us that has caused you to look upon us with favor. And yet we celebrate and we remember now the one who gave himself in our place. Whose perfect obedience has been transferred to our account so that we stand not just not just at a level playing field, not just neutral, but in perfect obedience to your law. And whose resurrection from the dead secures victory over sin and death. And leads us into eternal life which is to know you. And that one your son. Teach us to anticipate his coming. Teach our our minds to focus our, our hearts, our eyes of faith to look forward. To future grace. The return of our savior when all suffering will be set aside, when all tribulation will end, where all injustice will be put right, where judgment will be doled out in righteousness, and where His glory will be known as it has never been known to us before, when we will see Him as He is. Teach us to look, to stop placing our hope in houses and, Cars and money and friendships, in relationships, in the next month, in getting through the year, in children. Teach us to place our hope only in our Savior so that we might walk by faith, looking backward at the grace of Calvary with anticipation to the grace of His glorious appearing. We'll give you praise and thanks for the work that your spirit does through your word in us, your people. And we ask that you would continue that even now as we remember together. In the name of our Christ. Amen.